Sunday is the fifth Sunday of uh, the month, and uh, as you may be aware, maybe you don't know that we do this, on the fifth Sunday we call that a Rhythm Sunday. So we have six rhythms that we talk about at the Crossing Church. These are rhythms of life. These are things that, that we, we talk about as uh, we're already doing these things. Let's bring intentionality and the gospel into the things that we're already doing. And, um, and be family missionary servants in these different rhythms. And so um, we have the story formed rhythm, and that's just recognizing that story is an important part of life. You see story in, in culture and in movies and music. You see story in all the experiences that we've had that we share with each other. This is how God has worked in my life. And so we, um, we bring the gospel intentionality to that and how we share stories with each other. We share the story of God and how our story fits within this overarching theme of God's story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We have listen, and we haven't really dealt with that a lot uh, on a Sunday morning level, but that's just listening and actually hearing the brokenness, the, the grace of God in people's story and how the gospel speaks to the brokenness and the hurt as well as the good things in people's life. Um, bless, rec- recreate, eat, and celebrate are the other rhythms of life. And, and uh, back in May, we, we did the Rhythm Sunday of Recreate, where we spent the Sunday in the park, uh, Forsyth Park, and we played, and we ate, and we, we fellowshiped, and we kind of brought life to an area, maybe on Sunday morning didn't have a lot of life, to be a demonstration to our city, what the restorative aspect of the gospel does, how it recreates and and brings new where there's old and brings life where there was death. Um, in August, the fifth Sunday, we did the rhythm of blessed together. And so we came up here and we painted the parking lot for the computer store. We painted ourselves a lot also because of the stupid paint gun would work. Uh, we did a lot of cleaning around here. We cleaned a lot of vines off that building back there. Some of us got stung by wasps as a sacrifice unto the Lord. And uh, we, we just wanted to bless this, this block of the city. We want to do that more and more, not just on one Sunday a year. But, but the purpose of the Rhythm Sunday is not to devalue what we do right now, Sunday mornings, but it's to elevate everyday worship and help us to see that we're, we're constantly worshiping together. Let's come together on this fifth Sunday four times a year and practice this rhythm together so that we can then go back into our everyday life and do this rhythm with gospel intentionality all the time. And so we've done bless, we've done recreate on those individual Sundays together so that we can learn how to do them all the time as missional communities, as DNA groups. So this fifth Sunday, November 29th, is going to be the Sunday that we practice which rhythm together? Anybody want to take a guess? Eid, of course. It's Thanksgiving week. So don't, don't fill up Thursday and Friday. Save some, some room. And uh, we're going to come up here at uh, 11 o'clock, Sandal Drive in the, in the Fellowship Hall back there, the, uh, don't call it Fellowship Hall, the back building. And uh, we're going to eat a meal together, all right? And so here's, here's the intention behind it. It's going to be potluck, so bring something that, that everybody can share with. Um, if, you, if you don't have time or ability to cook, um, I know a connection we have at Raising Cane's. He can hook you up with some chicken strips. Um, not a special deal, just he can tell you where they're at and... And maybe cooking party. I don't know. I don't know if we'll be cooking by then. But uh, no, not. Maybe the toast. Maybe Charlie's. Okay. Um, anyway, so bring something up here to share. And, and so here's the idea we all have to eat. Like we talk about this all the time. Um, like DNA groups. How do you, how, when do you have time to meet as a DNA? Well, you eat 21 meals a week. 
Pick one. There's no reason we can't fit that into our life. So we as a church don't want to add busyness to your life. We want to recognize the rhythms that we're already doing and add the gospel and the church and family and life to that. So we all have to eat lunch that day. Let's bring some lunch up here. Let's eat this meal together. Let's enjoy good food. Like God created us with taste buds and created food to be good, to be enjoyed. He could have just made us robots or you can go get soylent protein drinks and just not have any taste, any vitality, any excitement about food. Just get what you need. But God made us with taste buds so that we could eat good food that points us back to the goodness of our God who created us with taste buds. Not to find our full and final satisfaction in food, right? So we, don't, we, don't, we, we push back against sinful eating. We don't live to eat. We eat to live. But let's enjoy a good meal together, being thankful for the God who created us and blessed, blessed the companies that, that made the meal, that grew the chickens, that uh, raised the chickens. I don't know they grow chickens, but that raised the chickens or grew the plants and harvested them. And the companies that turned that into the products that we can consume with joy. And, and here's the other thing I want to add to that. Bring someone who's in your life that's unchurched to that meal. Let them share in that meal with them. All right? So find somebody. I mean, they've got to eat lunch too, right? So it's, hey, I'm eating lunch today. You want to eat lunch with me? Sure. Well, where are you going? Well, I'm going to eat lunch with a bunch of people I hang out with on Sundays. Now, we're not going to, like, do a bait and switch when they're there, you know, and do some corny gospel presentation. We, we, we do plan to share in the communion meal together, the, the bread and the cup at the end, because it's very much something that God's people have done for thousands of years. But we're really just going to eat a meal, share stories, laugh, um, talk about what we did this week, talk about how um, um, good the football games were on Thursday, who the next coach at LSU will be, all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's not like a church service. It's just going to be, let's eat a meal. Because, because here's the thing, we like, want everyone in the crossing to be able to, to, to be doing this all the time in your homes or in local restaurants. Like We should all be intentional about looking at our 21 meals each week. Who can I share these meals with and be intentional about gospel relationships? So who can I go eat? And it's not always people outside of the crossing. Sometimes it's with each other. Like who, who do I want to press into? Who do I want to learn from? Who do I want to build relationship with who's already in the crossing or outside the crossing that I can go get breakfast with, lunch, have over to our house? You're, every week you're looking at meals that you can share with people to celebrate the goodness of God. To build relationships with those people. So next Sunday, we want to practice that. So come ready to do that at 11 o'clock. Um, and uh, it'll be a good time. Um, so we're in Jonah 4 this morning. And as, if you've been with us each of the last three Sundays, you know that if you start reading Jonah 4 without the previous three chapters, it's not going to make any sense at all. So let's, let's kind of walk through mentally the details of what's happened. God calls uh, this man Jonah, who is a... prophet of God, to go to this city of Nineveh uh, to proclaim this message of God's judgment against them because their sins have risen up against him. And Jonah gets up and runs, please, doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction, gets on a boat, head across the Mediterranean Sea to this city named Tarshish. And uh, Jonah gets, goes down into the bottom of the boat and goes to sleep. He's perfectly content with running away from God. So God sends a storm, 
to wake him up, to rouse these pagan settlers who have to figure out what, why is this storm happening? You know, in the pagan mentality, bad things happen, you've angered one of the gods. And so they're calling out to their gods, it's not working. They get this guy to wake up to call out to his god, they interrogate him, who are you? And he finally wakes up and, and says, I'm Jonah, I'm the father of Yahweh, who's the Lord of the heaven and the earth, which is huge. Because in their mind, there was one God of the heaven, one God of the earth, one God of the land, one God of the sea. And Jonah says he follows this God who's a God of everything. Oh, you've made this God mad. So what do we need to do? Well, throw me overboard. So in his one act of selflessness, kill me and you'll be saved. They don't do it because they're, they're more scared of this God who sent this storm. Finally, they relent because there's nothing they can do. They say, don't hold this against us because this is your guy and it's his idea. So throw him over the side. Jonah goes to death. He thinks, but God sends a fish to swallow him, to save him. And in the fish, we see the repentance of Jonah, recognizing God's grace, God's mercy toward him, God's compassion for him. You know, this, this, this really is a God who loves me, a God who cares about me. So the fish eventually vomits Jonah out. And Jonah's the only guy that we know of who can share that experience in heaven. It's like to be part of vomit, um, if that's something you want to know about. And he gets up and he does what? Goes to Nineveh. He arises and goes to Nineveh. He does the thing that God originally told him to do. And he proclaims a, this very simple message, this five-word sermon around the streets of Nineveh for three days. That the judgment of God is coming. Forty days. Not No repent, no, hey, you better change your ways. It's just judgment of God's coming. Period. And, um, and then we see that the response of the Ninevites was what Jonah feared. It's what he thought they would do. And they repented and called for a fast and put on sackcloth and turned away from their sins, turned to God in faith, and God spared them. And so the end of Jonah should be verse 10 of Jonah 3. That's how this story should end. Jonah rejoices in the Lord. He's thanking God for the salvation of the Ninevites. Jonah becomes this traveling evangelist who puts on all of his brochures and his website. Hey, I preached a five-word sermon and an entire city repented. Like, you want me to come to your city. Nobody can do what I can do. I can guarantee results. That's what we should be reading. But we don't. Verse 1, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The language there in verse 1 is just interesting, literally, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Literally, it's, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. A, 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 an intentional play on words. God had spared, shown mercy to the evil Ninevites, and now God's act of mercy was evil to Jonah. Extremely upset. Now think about the things that make you upset. Things that make you mad, like traffic, Netflix buffering, um, printer won't work, just the things that really get you aggravated. And imagine that on your list of things that make you mad, there being the repentance of 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh. These pagans turning from sin to God, faith in God. Like it, it wouldn't be on our list. Like we get so excited in the smallest steps of God's grace and evidence of God's grace in people's life. We're just, they're just in the smallest ways are turning from sin to Christ to, to love Him more, pursue Him more, be more obedient. We can't even imagine what it would be like to see an entire city turn to faith in God. So naturally the question is why? Why would Jonah be so upset about something that those who proclaim God's word, the people of God, would be really excited about? Well, at best, you might say Jonah was very passionate about the nation of Israel and their devotion to God. And maybe he was hoping that um, if God would judge the Ninevites, he could go back to the Israelites and say, look, I was just in Nineveh and God went all Sodom and Gomorrah on them. So you better listen to me and repent of sins. You better care about obedience and faithfulness to God. Because he still does those things like he did back in Genesis. Maybe his zeal for the Lord, his zeal for God's people to be passionate about the Lord, could have caused him to be upset. Maybe at, at best, maybe at best it's just Jonah's misplaced zeal. That, that the people of God won't take sin seriously because if God let off the Ninevites, then why should the Israelites care about sin. If he won't judge those wicked people, then we're, we're God's chosen people. He's sure not going to judge us. Or you might say Jonah was a bit worried about his reputation as a prophet. There's like these Old Testament laws about prophets. So if a prophet says this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, then he's a false prophet, and false prophets are killed. So he's like, look, if he gets back that I proclaim this prophecy and they didn't die, then I'm a false prophet and that's not going to look good. You know, I'm near retirement age. I want to I kind of retire with ease and I don't want to lose reputation among the fellow prophets of Israel. So, so I'm a little bit worried about myself and maybe he's insecure about his calling as a prophet and I don't, maybe I'm not that good of a prophet. Maybe I'm messed up in some kind of way. Maybe I didn't do a good job sermon prep and, and that's why God didn't judge the Ninevites. Some of that could have all been swirling through his mind, but we know, we know for sure that at the root of it all, what Jonah is being disciplined about isn't quite so noble, Right? You see, Jonah ran from God to begin with, not because he was worried about his ineffectiveness as a preacher. It's because he knew he was going to be effective as a preacher. He knew that God was going to spare them. He knew that God was going to be gracious and compassionate and not, not kill them. Like if God wanted to judge him, why does he need to send a prophet? Just kill him. You know, the angels showed up in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was no prophet ahead of that city telling them to repent or God's judgment is coming. So Jonah knew just inherently in the call, the fact that God was sending a prophet to proclaim this message carried with the possibility, because God is merciful and gracious and compassionate, that these people could repent of their sins and God would spare them and save them. 
And the problem Jonah had with all of that is that at the core of his being, down deep inside of him, Jonah did not want them to be spared. The core of his being, he was more concerned with his personal comfort than the lives of a few hundred thousand people. You see this play out as Jonah moves away from the city. He grabs this perch above and outside the city, hoping maybe he'll have a good seat for the show. You know, fire falling from heaven. You don't see that every day, consuming a people. He builds this shelter, this lean-to to wait this out. Now, just use your imagination. The city was huge, most important city in, in the world power at that day. Scholars are in 100% agreement over that number, 120,000 people. don't know the right hand from the left. Some say that was 120,000 children who don't have this moral consciousness. They can't turn up, tell right from wrong. And so it may have been 600,000 or more people actually in the city, or maybe it was just 120,000 pagans who had never had the revelation of God who he was made to them. Whatever the case, it's a lot of people. Half a million, 100,000, 200,000, whatever. It's a lot of people. Now, uh, those cities, of course, back then didn't have the industrial background noise like we have in our cities. Like you sit outside in the city today and mostly what you hear is, is traffic. Cars moving, concrete, vibrations and sounds from traffic. And so this city didn't have that. One of my, my favorite things about like the winter is you don't have any of the bugs at night and at nighttime, like, like earlier this morning, when we didn't have power because of the tree that fell next to our house, uh, I was able to hear things far away in our city because it was so quiet. Like, there were no traffic, no cars. And you could hear cars on the interstate, which is a couple of miles from my house, and hear other things way across town. You wonder what that was. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of what we don't usually experience. But, but back then, Jonah would have heard everything going on inside the city without air conditions running or cars driving on the streets. And so what does he hear? Use your imagination. He hears 120,000 people calling out for God's mercy. Weeping and wailing, repenting. Remember, they called a fast. All these people are not eating. All their animals are not eating. You know, adults could handle that. Kids, they think they're going to die if they don't have something every few hours. Animals don't have a clue why you're not feeding them. They're just bellowing and barking and crying out, feed me, feed me, feed me. Or maybe they just give up and lay down. So Jonah's sitting outside the city. He hears all of this this cacophony of noise going on inside the city. Whatever it sounded like, Jonah knew that it was a sound of repentance. And Jonah, knowing who God is, knew it was also the sound of God's mercy and compassion. They continue to make noise because God hasn't killed them. You see, God, seeing the heart of his prophet, just stewing and pouting, begins to act on Jonah. In the same way God sent the storm and the fish in chapter 1, God sends a plant to give Jonah shade. And I just love the language. Jonah was exceedingly glad, it tells us there, for the plant um, in verse um, um, 6. Exceedingly glad for the plant. Ah, shade, isn't this nice? Isn't this sick? Right? Like, can you believe this prophet of God is acting like this? Angry because God won't kill before his eyes 120,000 people, but rejoicing because he's in the shade with a a cup of iced tea or whatever he would have had. Let me warn you, you're going to be tempted to be very self-righteous about Jonah. To look down on him and justify yourself and feel good because... In your mind, at least I'm not that bad. I mean, he's pretty bad. But don't go there. Before we deal with us, though, let's deal with Jonah. 
Just as God sent the plant, God sent the vine, now God sends the worm to eat the vine. And God sends this scorching east wind to blow across and beat down on Jonah. The shade is gone. Now it's not just the sun beating down on him, it's this, this scorching east wind. Scholar, according to one scholar there, there's this wind in the Middle East known as a Sirocco, where the temperature rises quickly, the humidity drops, and fine particles of dust and sand blow violently through the air against whatever it comes in contact with. So, so don't have in your mind this ima- your imagination is sitting on the beach and the breeze blowing off the water, which cools you down on the beach. Think of the breeze blowing off the sand, carrying sand particles with it, and then add this hair dryer, uh, low humidity, high volume heat wave to it. Mm, that's nice. The sun's just killing him, beating down on him. He's probably bald to make it even worse, right? No shade, heat, wind, sand, dust. He's had enough. I would rather be dead. Is that so, Jonah? What an interesting choice of words. And so God asked him, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And at this point, Jonah just snaps. This is a full-out George Costanza rant. As a matter of fact, yes, I do. I would rather be dead. Since you're asking, I do well, I do really well, God. Kill me now. And here comes the Lord. So gentle, so patient, like, like a good dad. Like we get this sometimes by God's grace as parents. We don't do it all right all the time, but sometimes we're disciplining our kids. We don't always have to tell them explicitly everything. We just kind of lead them along, especially with older kids. Just ask questions, pursue their heart, and so that you can probe in just the right way so that they come to the realization of their sins themselves instead of you having to tell them, here's what you did wrong, here's why it's wrong, here's what you need to do right. Sometimes it's fun just to kind of lead them along. And that's, that's what, Jonah, what our father's doing with Jonah, wise good loving father does do you do well to be angry about the plant and Jonah snaps yes kill me and then God drops the hammer you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow which came into the being in a night and perished in a night and should not I pity none of that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the right hand from their left and also much cattle it's been well documented that the book ends in a strange way, this kind of rhetorical question. Why don't we have Jonah's response? But we have the book of Jonah, which is Jonah's response. Like, who else could tell this story, right? Who else could know these details? Jonah eventually makes his way back to Israel. And he heads down to a local coffee shop where his other prophet buddies are hanging out and they got their mags flipped open and they're having theological discussions. And Jonah's like, guys, you got to sit down and hear this story. You're not going to believe what just happened to me. And you can almost imagine the way that it's written. Jonah is telling this story with a somberness, this, this sorrow in his heart. Because he knows, by not answering this question, he knows what God the Father revealed in his heart. This incredible selfishness. This incredible disregard for the life of humans. In this incredible apathy about 120,000 people. And he can't believe how gracious his father was to pursue him and to root this out of him. This book of Jonah is his response to repentance. Jonah's not painted in a favorable light. He knows he's going to be uh, uh, kind of raked over the coals for the next few thousand years. 
or at least by anybody who reads this. And so it's very tempting to look down on him, but be careful when you do that. So chapter 4 closes, and we see this, finally the entire story in its clear focus, this mighty, amazing, powerful, sovereign God who desires not only to show compassion and mercy and grace on His people, but on all peoples. And this mighty, amazing God will do whatever it takes. He will use created objects who obey Him perfectly, like a storm, a fish, a vine, a worm, an east wind. And He will also use objects of creation that require more work, like His rebellious prophet. To accomplish his purposes and like you and me. God's desire for this people is clear, just as Jonah thought. God desired to show mercy and compassion on this people. God knows all, He knows exactly how these people would respond to the preaching of His word. Like this didn't surprise God. And you have to believe when God chose Jonah, He chose the prophet who would least want to preach this message. So not only would God get more glory because it wasn't Jonah, it wasn't Jonah's love and compassionate preaching for the souls of these people that saved them, so that only God gets the credit and glory for their repentance, but it also as a lesson to His people, the nation of Israel. God desires more than just the Jews to know Him. And to make this point, I'm going to call this reluctant, rebellious prophet to demonstrate my grace and mercy and compassion to these pagan people. Like some people seriously think that God's evangelistic heart didn't show up in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, all God cared about was the Israelites. They're my people, I'm going to keep them, protect them, and kill everybody else. That's not the God of the Old Testament. The problem with that viewpoint is the Old Testament. Right? The, the, from Genesis 12, when God promised that through Abraham's descendants, all nations of the earth would be blessed. To Sodom and Gomorrah, when God was willing to spare those wicked cities if just a few righteous people would have been found. To people like Rahab and Ruth, who were both non-Jews, but were not only brought into the community of grace, community of faith that was the Israelites, but they were actually brought into the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite woman. To the Syrian commander Naaman, who was brought to the, the people of God to be healed in the Jordan River. All through the Old Testament, you have these small examples of God designed to save not just his people, but people outside of the Jewish realm. And, and his people, in fact, were created to be a light among the Gentiles. So that the Gentiles would see in the distinctiveness of the Jews, in their devotion to God, in their obedience to his commands, their distinctiveness, they're not worshiping idols, they're not uh, sacrificing their children to false gods. In their distinctiveness, they would see this one true Yahweh God above all other false gods, and they too would repent and become a follower of Yahweh. That was God's design. It's God, what God wanted to accomplish. In fact, when they failed to show their distinctiveness, when they began to worship idols and false gods, just like the pagan cultures, is when God disciplined His own people, eventually leading to their exile and their conquering as a nation, being conquered. And worse yet, God's people in the Old Testament thought they still had God's favor simply because they were Jewish. They had this bloodline, and all of the people only deserved God's wrath and condemnation. And so this story, for many reasons, but for one reason for sure, exists to show God's desire to show mercy and grace to all people. The most noble characters in this story was not the Jewish prophet of God. It was the pagan sailors, the pagan people of Nineveh. They're the most noble characters in this story. 
Don't miss this. God knew that. He knew Jonah was a mess, yet called him. Could it be possible sometimes God calls us to, to situations where we're not always as, as successful as we think we should be in order to declare truths about him to the world around us? Could it be possible that God will sometimes call us to do things that we think are awful, uncomfortable, difficult, things we want to run away from so that through the messiness of how we try and fail to obey God, he is glorified. He accomplishes his purposes and his work. Could it be possible that God calls us to do things where it's, it doesn't always work out the way we think it's going to work out because God has a plan bigger than our emotions or our security or our, our well-being? You see, God's desire for all nations, all peoples, is to show mercy, grace, and compassion. Israel didn't get that as well then. I think we theoretically get it. But for some of us, that's all it is, is a theory. It's just an idea. We had, oh yeah, of course God desires all people to be saved. Of course God wants the gospel to go to all nations. Nations, not geopolitical nations, but we're talking about people groups. And so there's thousands of people groups that still aren't reached the gospel. So we sit in churches in America, especially, and we say, yeah, of course that's what God wants. In theory. But how is it showing up in practice? You see, our mission as a crossing church is not just a Monroe. Monroe is our primary mission field because we spend about 98, 99% of our life here in Monroe, and it should be our primary mission field. And we should see Monroe as a mission field. We should see ourselves as missionaries. That's part of our identity, right? But we're already praying about where God would have us partner and make disciples and plant churches beyond Monroe. In a couple of weeks, Abigail and I will be going to Nicaragua to... Um, do, do some mission work with three other churches that are taking a team down there. One of the churches is a, a church I used to pastor. And our, our primary purpose, the reason we're going, is to talk to the missionary on the ground to find out how they're making disciples and planting churches and could the crossing possibly be a part of that. And if God, the Holy Spirit says no, then we won't go back. But if he opens the door there, then it's a place we could go back and do some good work. And so let me ask you a few questions. As God asked Jonah a few questions, let me ask you a few questions. How does your life reflect God's heart of compassion for all peoples and all nations? How do your prayers, your giving, your going reflect God's heart for all peoples and all nations? So you care about people of different ethnicities and different people groups around the world. That doesn't mean the first thing you do is, i got to get on a plane and go. That doesn't mean i got to move my family or move me individually to this country and live there for the next 10 years. That doesn't always mean that. It could, but it doesn't always mean that. It might mean you need to get on your knees and pray for those people. Believing that praying for people groups around the world is actual work. Get a, a resource like Operation World and begin to pray through the nations for God to save people. You get online and start learning about the culture. You find people in our city who are a common to those cultures or like those cultures and even people from those cultures and begin to interact with them and build relationships with them to learn about those people groups and share the gospel with the people from those cultures who are here already instead of hopping on a plane and flying around the world. Right now for every dollar that you give to the Crossing Church we give away 15%. Primarily 13 of that 15% goes straight to church planting and mission work in the U.S. and around the world, because our Father has a heart for all people, and we are headed to a day when all people, or people from all people groups, will be gathered around the throne of Jesus to worship Him together. 
And so that's part of our identity as a church. But God didn't just desire to show mercy and grace and compassion to Nineveh, right? Secondly, he also desired to show mercy, grace, and compassion to Jonah. With the way that God pursued him, the way that God graciously questioned him. Do you do well, Jonah? Don't you love that about our father? Like Adam and Eve in the garden. They blew it. They knew it. They're naked. They're ashamed. And here comes God, not, not in judgment condemnation, but where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Who, who told you you were naked? <coughs> who told you that you had done this? Do, do you do well, Jonah? And in the New Testament, how often Jesus dealt with people through simple questions. He didn't have to tell people exactly what they were doing. He could answer, ask questions and just draw it out of their heart. So Christian, where are you this morning? God is constantly calling us to follow him, to know him, to love him, to pursue him, to obey him, to find in Jesus our supreme satisfaction and joy. So Christian, where are you this morning? Are you experiencing the joy of your salvation? Do you see and know all that you have in Jesus? All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Are you finding that to be more satisfying than anyone or anything else in life? Are you so overwhelmed by His grace and love that it's just filling you up and overflowing to the people around you and they're seeing it in you? You're not living this life bogged down with worry and anxiety and fear and frustration. It's a life filled with joy because you have Jesus. Are you running to Him with your sins to be cleansed daily? Are you running from Him with your sins and shame? Do you do well this morning, Christian? Because you see and know and feel that you are a dearly loved child of your Father in Heaven. If you're not there this morning, Christian, know this. Your Father in Heaven will pursue you, is pursuing you, right now pursuing you. He'll never stop pursuing you to bring you back so that you find in Him everything you need for everything that's broken inside of you. And sometimes he will bring you through rough stuff. But it's for your good. Because he uses that to sanctify you. So that you have greater and greater trust and love and faith in him. God desires to show mercy and grace and compassion not only to the Ninevites, not only to Jonah, but lastly also to our city. And God's plan, get this, God's plan to show mercy and grace, and compassion on the city of Monroe is to call his people to go out and show his love, grace, mercy, and compassion. Like this plan A, there is no plan B. Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh. Arise, Jared, and go to Monroe. Arise, Tom. Arise, Scott. Arise, Kelly. Arise, Jesse. Arise, Brendan, and go to Monroe. I'm calling you to this city. Arise the Crossing Church. 
Arise, Lakeshore Baptist. Arise, uh, College Place. Arise, North Renault. Arise, First Monroe. Arise, First West. Arise, Auburn Avenue Presbyterian. Arise, Churches of Monroe. I'm calling you to go to the city of these people. A city filled with people dying in sin, trapped in sin. Filled with people dying and trapped in religion who aren't experiencing the joy of their salvation. Arise and go to them. And we, unlike Jonah, we aren't selfish. And so we go wholeheartedly laying down our lives, sacrificing our comforts and personal delights. We go with no prejudice or apathy in our hearts toward people in Monroe. We go and do whatever it takes to saturate every home in Monroe with the gospel. Unlike Jonah, we aren't rebellious and reluctant. Don't we wish, right? Like, that's really good evidence this morning. If you're, if you don't, if you're struggling with the strength of your salvation, that's really good evidence that you truly are born again, is if there is this angst, this longing inside of you, like, yes, I want to go. I know you're calling me. I want to go. That's who I want to be. I have this desire to be this gospel witness to the people in the city of Monroe. I, I know I fail, but man, I'm, I'm bent in that direction. That is the, the arrow of my life. That's good evidence that you're born again. To be apathetic about that calling could cause you to question your salvation. And that's important to do if you're walking in disobedience and running to sin and running from God. So that, that's, that's who I want to be. Let's love the widow. Let's love the orphan. Let's love the alien. Let's lay down our lives for the good of others. And, and we, we have this struggle because we wake up every day with the reality of who we are when we look at the mirror. You see, the biggest threat to our healthy, our, our health and vibrancy as a church in our city is this heart of Jonah in chapter 4. It's the biggest threat to the, the, um, the healthiness of the crossing church, the vibrancy of who we are. It's not theological ability. I mean, notice Jonah had theology right. We could pass the systematic theology test, right? It's not knowing who God is. It's knowing God. Jonah was selfish. Jonah cared more for his comfort than the souls of the people around him. He was self-righteous. He felt superior to those evil and pagan, wicked pagans. He hated them because they weren't Jews, so there was some racism in his heart. But you can boil all of that down into selfishness. Jonah wanted his will and was consumed with his agenda and not God's. All Jonah wanted was for God to take care of his personal comfort. I would be more comfortable in the shade, not in the sun and the wind, God, I'd be more comfortable to sleep in the bottom of the boat, sailing away from them than than preaching in that city, God. I'd be more comfortable with all of those people dead and in hell than me having to deal with them, God. So what about us? What are the things that grab our heart and we delight in that make us comfortable and reluctant to sacrifice for the good of those who are far from God and need Jesus? Like, I can't answer that question for you. Nobody in this room can answer that question for you. Only you know that. There are times I know for me, I, I, I just don't want to exert the mental and emotional energy to engage someone with deep, soul-searching questions and discussion. There are times I don't love that person enough to pursue their heart. It's much easier to just deal with surface stuff, man. I talk basketball and football all day. And never have to engage someone on a deeper level to pursue their heart. 
That's the heart of Jonah. When I act like that. In Jonah chapter 4. So, so let me ask you some questions. And um, I, I'm going to put them on the screen. This is from actually the Gospel Primer. Week 6. That we've asked you to walk through in your DNA groups. And uh, we have found in the groups that I'm in. It's beneficial to take two weeks for each week. Because don't skip questions man. They're, they're so good. They're so challenging. So some of these questions you'll come to one day. If the purpose of the gospel is ultimately to restore and recreate all things, how might God want to use you to accomplish that? So then what is the most redemptive or restorative thing that you've done or participated in on behalf of your neighborhood or city? Have you ever thought that everything that God has given you, time, talents, education, resources, has all been entrusted to you for His glory and the work of the gospel? So then, what percentage of your time are you spending in ways that are restorative in your community? How might you use your talents and skills as a blessing and a display of the gospel to others? How could you share your education and the experiences God has has given you with others for their good? Do you prioritize your resources, money, and things around self and family first or around kingdom and mission? How could you begin to make changes in all of this for the sake of the gospel? What organizations in our city are doing the most to bless the people of our city? Single moms and homeless and at-risk youth and elderly and businesses and schools. So in what ways can we partner with them to extend this blessing to your city? And lastly, how can you serve your city and be a verbal and visual proclamation of the gospel? Do you do well, member of the Crossing Church? And so now we are all like Jonah. We're exposed in our sinfulness. Because we see where we, we, don't, we don't do those things. Even though, by God's grace, we're doing some good stuff, Right? We, we know that we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go to multiply this throughout our city. And so hear the words of God in 1 Peter 2, 9-12. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is our identity. That is who we are all the time. All the time. And God has graced us with this distinctiveness so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jonah, how did you forget what I did for you in chapter 2? How did you forget my grace to you? I demonstrated to you just a few days ago in the belly of that well. How do we forget that once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received His mercy, but now we have. How often we act entitled. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't pursue comfort. Don't pursue comfort above people. Sacrifice comfort for people. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So you're sitting here this morning, you're hearing these words, you're desiring to be this people. This is God's mercy and grace already at work. You are still alive. You're not dead. It's not too late. I tell our girls all the time, every day you don't wake up and hell is a good day. Everything else is just bonus. You're still alive. You can still repent. You can still turn to Christ, trusting not only He's forgiven you already for all your failures that you have done, you will do, but His Spirit lives in you to empower and enable your obedience. And your Father in Heaven won't quit chasing you to shape and mold you and conform you to become this person He's created you to be and called you to this task. Like all the things that you beat yourself up about that's been forgiven, and all the things you think you can't do, His Spirit is in you to enable you to do. What else do we need? Jonah's failures point us to the true Jonah. The one who also went outside of the city. Not to self-righteously judge and condemn the city, but to die for the city. And to die for this city. And the people of all cities. And this true Jonah, this Jesus, sends his people back into the city, Monroe, for us to lay down our lives for the good of others, that they would know and believe and see Jesus as better than anyone or anything else, and that in Jesus they would find life and joy that is incomparable. And we would sacrifice comfort because we love our city and we love the people of our city. Not because Monroe is the coolest city ever on the face of the earth, because we have all the cool things, or because Monroe in some way deserves it because we have amazing stuff. Not because there's anything like that, but because our sovereign God has sent us to this city. Because he sent us to this city, this is where we laid out our life for these people. We love them because our Father in heaven created them, and he loves them. And so we arise. And we go. Father, we're thankful for your grace and mercy. Um, just what you worked through the prophet of Jonah. How you discipline those you love. You didn't just leave him in his brokenness and his sinfulness. And you, and you do the same with us. You call us to salvation. You call us to be sent you send us out. You enable us to do things we can't do in our own power. And when we fail, your sacrifice covers all of our sins. And somehow, in amazing ways we can't even imagine, you use a very imperfect and broken and selfish, comfort-seeking people to accomplish your work in this city so that you would be glorified, so that your name would be known. And we thank you that we're a part of that. Now, Father, I ask that you would help us this morning to repent where we need to repent, to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, to be convicted where we need to be convicted, and to find in Jesus everything we need. He is our life. He is our hope. He is our joy. Thank you for putting us together as a people to do this together. We ask in the mighty, strong, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. In a moment... Uh, we're going to read a prayer for this week.